welcome to another episode of The Conversational. Today, I am here. We are in the COVID crisis still, so I'm not actually physically here, sadly. We are doing this via Zoom, seems to be the way, but I'm here with Jeff Barnes, who is the CEO at Angel Investors Network. Uh, Jeff has had a fascinating background. I know you're going to love this podcast. Uh, It was fascinating just to read his bio, much less hear his stories personally, but he's always had a focus on three things, really, health, wealth, and technology, which is interesting because he started off in a very impoverished state with his family. He then was a big lover of sports, uh, wanted to play baseball, didn't work out, went to the, into the Navy, was a nuclear-trained mechanic and scuba diver for the U.S. Navy on submarines. Um, he had lots of other fun adventures uh, really relating to the, the, the water. I'll, I'll let him explain. Then he had a honorable discharge, which of course was a major holy shit moment for him, hashtag Hoshimo, and got himself really into the technology and, and financial world and has been giving back ever since. He has done some amazing things, helps a myriad of companies is an investor amongst other things and it is my pleasure to welcome him here as a guest on the conversational so hello jeff and welcome thank you julia i really appreciate it and thanks for having me here it's um it's a it's my pleasure you've got a fascinating background as i have promised the listeners but as as you know my my favorite thing to do i like to to dig back into history and start from the very beginning so tell us where where were you where were you born where where and, and did you have brothers and sisters and what did your parents do? Sure. So I was born in Los Angeles. Um, I have two younger siblings, a brother and a sister, and um, my dad was self-employed, uh, hardwood floor installer, and did some really high-end, top-end floor installs in places like Beverly Hills and downtown LA, and he did a lot of the really big work. Um, there. And then my mom had a number of different jobs and her passion in life was really horses and using horses to help people with uh, therapy and disabilities and things like that. So that's uh-huh. kind of where everything started. That's amazing. Okay. I've, I've done that myself. I'm a, that's, a, that's amazing. Did she, were, what was the impetus for your mom to, uh, to do that, to, to be kind of helping people with horse therapy? You know, I, I don't know if it was like an FU to her parents, but um, she just she just wanted horses her entire life. And when I was, I think it was seven years old, she finally got her first horse. So that was our first family horse. And we got involved in that. And I was in 4-H and did all these different things with horses. Uh, turns out I'm incredibly allergic to them. So it never really took oh. for me. <laughs> but oh um, but it, it, it was fun. It was fun having a horse. He actually passed away last year at the age of uh, 35 years old. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Amazing. The horses were in there too. I didn't mention that in your bio, but you get, okay. So you've got the water and the equine. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm going to figure like, well, I won't mix the two yet. Okay. So anyway, so keep going on, on your, your, your youth kind of living in in Southern California and your, your parents. What, what were, yeah, keep going. So, you know, when, when we're growing up, um, my, my mother's side of the family was all educators, all worked in the public education system. My dad's side, my grandpa was a uh, World War II vet turned police officer. Um, my grandma, my dad's side was a Rosie the Riveter type. So she worked in factories during World War II and then went into banking. And, um, you know, both of them lived on farms growing up. My, my dad and my aunt actually lived on a farm for a while growing up. And so I've got a little bit of that 
blue collar, hardworking, you know, dirt, hands in the dirt kind of mentality growing up. And when you come from that type of household, uh, especially with my dad having a, a business that always seemed to be up and down, uh, you, you just learn to be very resourceful as a kid. And I, I joke now because um, I'm, I'm divorced, so I've been dating and I just find it hilarious when I talk to these girls and like, oh my gosh, you actually know how to fix things. I'm like, well, doesn't every guy, like, didn't every guy kind of grow up the way I did? Like, you're learning how to fix brakes and take care of things and, and work on cars on the weekends so that they drive to get to work on the, the weekdays. You know, that's kind of what my upbringing was and um, did that for, you know, as long as we, we, we moved out of Colorado, or I'm sorry, out of California to Colorado in the middle of my sixth grade year during mm. the, the 1994 Northridge earthquake right after that. Um, oh, so you were, you were in California for the earthquake. Yeah. Well, actually, ironically enough, I was not because my dad, uh, with his business, he actually had a friend who had moved to Colorado a while before was building a beautiful house. And so he didn't trust anybody besides my dad to install his hardwood force. So we went out there to Colorado, Western Colorado in a little town called Carbondale to help this guy build his house and build his floors. So my dad and I were actually in Colorado when the earthquake happened and my mom and my brother and sister were back home. Oh and gosh. So here I am and we were on a track system in school. So I'm on winter break and expecting to go back in January to go back to, uh, to school January, February. And instead we just, we get there, the house gets packed up and we turn around and we leave and go right back to Colorado. Were they, so, obviously they were okay. Was it, were they affected by the earthquake? You know, um, mentally more than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my dad's business was struggling big time at that point. And we lived in Palmdale, California, which at the time was a gang capital of Southern California. Mm. It was just not a nice place. There were bullet holes in the, the cinder block wall behind our house that my brother and I would climb over to go to school. So I think that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And my mom and dad just agreed, hey, let's get the heck out of here. Colorado's gorgeous and we can start brand new up there. So they literally dropped everything. And when I say dropped everything, I mean, didn't even try and sell the house didn't try and take care of the business, like literally just left. And wow. It was quite a culture shock for me. And I didn't understand all of it, of course, that, you know, when you're in sixth grade, you just don't really get all that stuff. Right. Um, so to me, it was one of those like, well, what the hell did we do this for? I love playing baseball. I was playing 10, 11 months out of the year in Southern California. And here I come to Colorado and you're lucky if you get three months in. Right. So, um, and you're in a small town, right? You said, how, how big was this town that you guys moved to? So it was about 6,000 people spread across hundreds of square miles. <laughs> so it yeah. was very, like my graduating class, when I finally graduated high school, uh, we had 82 people in my graduating class. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, that's about how small the entire community was. And, and we were the one high school, the next high school is about 15, 20 miles away down the road. So wow. yeah, it wasn't exactly like a very populated area. That's for sure. So what was, so I know, you know, you, you had, you talked about, you know, your dad's business was struggling and obviously, you know, your mom, you know, and, and her, the work that she was doing, I'm sure that, um, you know, made, had a major shift when you guys all moved to Colorado too. How, how did things go? I, I, I know you'd mentioned at times that you guys struggled. Um, what, what was, what was, um, what was the story behind that? Yeah. So, um, what happened was, you know, without going into too many details because it would just bore people, but essentially my dad, uh, being self-employed, had a business partner in Southern California. And that guy got into drugs, embezzled from my dad's company, uh, took all this money and essentially 
bankrupted the, the company. Well, my dad, trying to sort of save everything, uh, he went from 50 employees down to about two, mm-hmm. lost a lot of money in that regard, and ended up just trying to make good with the employees. But unfortunately, uh, that didn't help out with, uh, he didn't pay the payroll taxes and, and get that taken care of. To my, the best of my knowledge, that's what exactly what happened. And years later, the IRS is coming and looking for him and you know, knocking on the door, wondering where this money is because all these back taxes are owed. And because the back taxes were owed and we didn't have money because the business was hurting, they literally left the house and there was a mortgage still that was outstanding. So, um, you know, not to throw my parents under the bus because I love them and they've obviously raised me to be who I am, but they made some really poor decisions and had some really shitty situations happen. I don't know if I can say that on the air here, but yeah, I've got holy um, shit moments. You're good with that one. (laughs) Okay. Um, you know, some really crappy things that happened to them along the way, and they just didn't either have the right advisors or the right people in their corner, or the right people to talk to that would help them out. And so they ended up finding themselves in massive debt, uh, the IRS coming after them and trying to garnish wages and things like that. The business failed. So I'm sure my dad's ego and pride was hurt dramatically. Sure. And when we moved, we didn't have anything. So I ended up, uh, we were staying at that house I was telling you that my dad and I helped build. Uh, we stayed with them for a while and they were very kind and, and gracious enough to let us sleep on the couch and stay at the house for a little while. And then after a while, we moved into a travel trailer. Uh, so they had a travel trailer. My my grandparents had let us borrow theirs. So we were, you know, a family of five sleeping in two tiny little travel trailers out on a property in oh uh, Western Washington. And uh, I was going through school with that. You know, I, I did that while I was going to school and had to, you know, still wake up every morning and, you know, on a travel trailer when you have about 10 gallons of hot water <laughs> between three siblings and you know, a couple of adults, it's not the easiest thing to do, not to mention meal prep and all of that. And uh, I, I how old were you? Know, was this, was this, what, what, how old were you? 12 to 13 okay. years old. Wow. Wow. So, you know, right about the time when you're trying to make all these lifelong friends and, and deal with all that and, you know, for me, it was just a reality. And mm-hmm. I think I, I attribute that to my upbringing. My, my dad, my grandpa, um, grandpa's on both sides. My, my mom's father-in-law, or not father-in-law, but stepfather, was mm-hmm. a, a Nazi um, internment camp survivor. And oh my gosh. So I got to learn all these different traits, not by them telling me much about them until I was much older, but just by the way they acted and the way they carry themselves. And, you know, if you got a sliver in your finger, you didn't cry about it and whine about it. You pulled the sliver out and you moved on. And uh, same types of thing. Like, that's just the mentality that I grew up with. So this, this lifestyle, to me, at the time, it sucked. There's no doubt about it. But it was just, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it through this. And my dad, my mom, they never broke down. They never, um, like, turned to alcoholism or anything like that. They stuck it out and they figured it out. And eventually, we got back on our feet. But it wasn't until after living in a motel and turns out the motel was owned by one of my friends, dads in school. So it was no secret where I lived and, you know, we'd shop at the Goodwill and we would, you know, go to the church to get food because we couldn't afford enough food for, for the family for a while. And so that was kind of the lifestyle for a while. And I lived in this sort of uh, new culture shock world turned into a much, a, a very big introvert. Uh, didn't really want to disclose or talk to anybody about my life and what was going on. Um, and I was telling somebody the other day that I lived when my parents finally got back on their feet, business got going, everything was kind of copacetic. It wasn't mm-hmm. great, but it was manageable. I literally lived a hundred feet away from the high school. Okay. So for my entire high school up until the, towards the end of my senior year, I lived 100 feet from high school and I never once 
brought a single friend over to my house because oh my I, was just, I was just embarrassed by how we lived and, you know, and, and all, and it wasn't even bad. And looking back on it now, I know it was not bad where we lived at that point, but I think I had just carried all of this stuff from earlier on that I just, I, I didn't feel comfortable having other, inviting other people, my peers into my life. Yeah. I, well, I, it totally makes sense, right? Those are the formative years and, you know, peer pressure and the hormone, like there's so many things that go on. So it's, it's totally acceptable. And what a, wow, what a childhood. And so it totally makes sense, you know, look fast forward and thinking about um, what you do to try to help others. And, you know, your scrappy attitude has, has transformed into a scrappy business to help others learn how to be scrappy, right? So that all makes a ton of sense to me. But what I find ironic is, um, you know, I, I have to believe that your parents, um, you know, with the struggles that they had financially and with the IRS coming from them, there was probably some baggage about, you know, trusting people and money, all of those kinds of things. Your dad sort of having, you know, been um, taken advantage of by his partner. I'm sure there were a lot of, of pent up issues that they had that trans transferred to you. Absolutely. I, I remember dinner table conversations about the rich people being evil and you never trust an attorney, you know, oh. and, uh, that was something I carried for a long time. And so I was, of course, and I still am proud of my blue collar roots and the fact that I can fix pretty much anything on this planet. And I do believe that. Um, but it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't the reality. That was just their reality. It was their paradigm. Right. And I had to, growing up, figure out what I wanted in life. What, what was going to be my viewpoint? What was gonna, what's going to be my legacy? And how am I going to leave my kids? And I didn't want them to have this sour taste in their mouth. You know, I know I'm fast forwarding way beyond it, but I didn't want my life to be one of resentment and frustration and anguish about something that I didn't fully understand. Right. No, but it, but it's, and it's amazing that, you know, this is why I love doing this podcast because it's, you know, people listen to stories like this and then see what you've done. And this is, you know, nobody's had a perfect life. Everybody's had these, you know, major Hoshimos that have happened to them and yours are yours is, is truly uh, amazing what a what a story I want to talk about though you you'd mentioned early on about in and you have it in your bio about your love of baseball and playing so given that you were kind of introverted in high school and didn't have people over was did you involve yourself in sports and is that where your love of baseball came and I, know, I know it happened in California before you came but did you sure. continue to play it when you threw out these moves Oh, absolutely. So I, I was playing baseball from you know, the moment I could walk. And my parents have old footage of uh, me hitting the, the wiffle ball over the house and stuff like that from when I was like three years old. So baseball was going to be my life. That was it. There was no plan B. There was nothing else. It was just going to be baseball. So when I got to Colorado, I was pretty good. And because I had so much practice and training compared to everybody else that lived in Colorado. So I, I excelled really well. But the problem was I also got into football. And I uh, was not great at football by any stretch, but I got better and better. And so in high school, I was, you know, first starting team and all that, which is kind of funny to say when you're in a class of, or in a school of 400 people. But, um, you know, I, I played <laughs> a lot, lot of football. playing time, though. That's good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Iron Man was the, the typical thing out there for sure. Um, so my junior year, well, actually, I take that back. My sophomore year, I got onto this all-star baseball team. And we were going to travel to Australia and we we're going to play in this three day, nine game tournament. 
which is a lot, especially when you're talking about opposite hemispheres and you're practicing in the snow in Colorado and then you have to go play in the heat in Australia. So I ended up ruining my shoulder. I was playing, I, I started out as a pitcher. Turns out our catcher quit, couldn't do it. So I ended up taking over the catcher responsibilities and my arm just got shot. It just got totally ruined. So when I was 16 years old, I ended up dislocating my arm. Um, didn't know it at the time. I, something happened, just that repetitive throwing, and it just hurt really bad. So I had to take it easy. They said, hey, you probably injured your rotator cuff. We don't know. Just take it easy. So I did up until the fall, and then it was uh, – now it's football season. Well, the first day of our – that we could put our pads on, I go up against our all-state running back, and I go to tackle him, and I just you know, pop my shoulder right out. Mm. I just felt it just uh. pop completely out, had to pop it back in. and. Oh. I knew right then and there that I, cause I couldn't lift my arm up, you know, halfway above my, uh, above my chest or anything like that. So I uh, then ended up going and seeing a doctor and sure enough, they're like, yeah, your arm's done. You're not going to throw a baseball again. You'll be lucky if you can lift weights and like that. We got to do surgery. Oh. I had torn my bicep tendon. I tore my upper and my, my lower rotator cuff. And even after surgery and lots of PT, it's, you know, to this day, it's, and this is over 20 years later. Um, it's still nothing close to what it was. So in you know, a very short period of time, I went from only wanting to play baseball for the rest of my life to never being able to. And, yeah. and this was, and you were 16? Was this, you were sophomore, junior? Was, yeah, was this your sophomore, sophomore, junior year. And yeah, then by yeah. my senior year, I, and of course I was an idiot and I thought I could just power through and muscle through. And so I ended up re-injuring it a couple of times and mm. never quite as severe, but bad enough to where I knew I was never going to be able to do that. Um, uh, baseball again. So I need to figure so, out something else to do. And so then what was plan B? there wasn't one unfortunately <laughs> you know so that was uh that was the interesting thing thing so I didn't know what I wanted to do in life but I knew that I didn't have money uh, my grades were good but not great uh, so I could get scholarships but it wasn't really likely to, that I'd get the scholarships to places I wanted to go and I didn't know enough about what I wanted in life to even consider college as an option and I just really didn't know so one day uh, beginning of my senior year this guy walks in um, and says, Hey, I'm a recruiter for the Navy. You want some pizza? Sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, that's kind of how that whole journey began. And I said, yeah, this sounds really cool. You're going to pay me to, to go there. You're going to pay me to sign up. You're going to pay for my schooling. Cool. And I get to travel the world. Sounds great. Sign me up. You know, and this were was, your, were your grand, I was gonna say, were your grandparents alive? Cause didn't you say your grandfather? Yeah. Yeah, both. Um, so my my mom's stepdad had just passed away. My mom's dad, who was also a World War II vet, had just passed away. But my my dad's dad was still alive. Um, so yeah, he got to see me in uniform and, and everything like that. So that was. I bet that was yeah. I'm sure that there was a little bit of that. You know, I mean, look, you've got a legacy of it and some pride there as well. So that makes oh, sense. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he's one of my idols. I have his name tattooed on my leg. So yeah. Really? He's oh, he's absolutely a big part of my life. That's yeah. amazing. So he was, was he in the Navy as well? He was actually in the army. Um, the army. So we always gave each other a good ribbing back and forth when <laughs> I would talk about the difference, but he said, you know, I always love those Navy guys. They always had the best ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? There was the, there's the movie. I'm a big movie buff. It was um, with Jack, Jack Nicholson, um, you know, and Tom oh, Cruise. Yeah. 
where he's like, oh, yeah, we love those Navy guys. They always give, they talk, no, he was a Maroon, right? They always pick us up and give us a ride whenever we need yep. to go someplace or something. Yeah, Rage you guys always get a lot of the crap, right? It all rolls down. Yeah, anyway. So, but I love the, I love the, you know, kind of following the family tradition a little bit and, and taking advantage of the fact that, you know, you could do something you'd be proud of and get an education and be paid. So what did you, you know, we read a little in your bio, right? The nuclear, the nuclear scientist and submarining. What did you, did you know immediately? Did you start right on that track? Or was it like subs? That's my thing. Or how did you No, did you actually. Um, so while I was in high school, I was, I, I was going to auto shop and learn how to fix everything under the sun. And it had four wheels or even two wheels. And then I worked in an auto shop throughout high school. So like I said, I knew how to fix stuff. And I thought I, I looked at my prospects in life and I said, I cannot be a mechanic for the rest of my life. God help me. I've got to get out of this town. You know, it's the tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. I've got to leave. I, I can't just be a townie and, and hanging out and being a mechanic for the rest of my life. That's not what I want for myself. And so I, when the guy came up and said, you can join the Navy and here's the SEALs training program and the BUDS and you can do all that stuff. I was, I was hooked. I was going to be a warrior, right? That's what I wanted to do. And turns out you have to be able to be you know, do a lot of pull-ups and push-ups, which is really hard to do. On a <laughs> With a bad shoulder, shoulder. right? So yeah, that was a little bit challenging. I never really quite passed those tests. Um, but then I took a test, the ASVAP, and I would screw it up if I tried to tell you what that ac acronym stands for. But uh, they tested my aptitude and they said, "Okay, cool, you you pass. You can be part of our nuclear uh, power program." It's like, "What's that?" They're like, "Oh, you're going to learn about nuclear power and how to run a, a ship that's powered by a nuclear reactor." I was like, "Well." Don't know anything about that, but cool. Let's check it out. So I show up, and in boot camp they say, "Okay, you can have, as a nuke." That's what our, we refer to as, mm -hmm. as a nuke. You have one of three tracks. You have you can be an electrician, an electronics technician, or a mechanic. And I said, "Oh, please don't make me a mechanic." And sure enough, they're like, "Oh, well, you scored off the charts on this one. So guess what? You get to be. You're going to be a mechanic <laughs> in the navy." I was, I was, I, I will not lie. I was devastated. I did not want to be. I wanted to learn a new skill. I did not want to be a mechanic. And I was pretty bummed out about that. But I, looking back, probably the best thing that could have happened. Um, right. That's what these things, I love that, right? These things that you see as negatives and obstacles are the things that, you know, are, are make you what you are. So, yeah, it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. So off you are being a, okay, a, a naval nuclear mechanic. Is that yep. how? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So a nuclear trained mechanic, essentially. And they put you through all this training. So a year and a half of school, you do almost the equivalent of three to four years of schooling in a technical vocation because you're working 80 hours a week and nonstop and all of that. So you learn nuclear power and, and reactor theory and principles and all that. And then of course you learn how to be a mechanic and then you start to apply that in the job. So it's almost like a schooling and apprenticeship all rolled into one. And then they send you out to the fleet. And so I ended up because of uh, the, the fleet dynamics at the time, they're always asking for volunteers for submarines. And I said, well, cool. If you're going to pay me a little bit more, which a little bit more is like a hundred bucks more a month, something like that. Um, and I get to go travel on a submarine. Cool. This sounds awesome. Let's sign me up. Cause I don't want to be on a floating city. Um, which yeah, that was the other alternative is an aircraft carrier. A floating tomb instead. Got it. Makes yeah, it sounds yeah. much better. Yeah, a, sinking, a sinking tomb actually. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. They might have needed to check me a little bit at the door for that one. But um, yeah, I, I signed <laughs> up for subs and uh, joined the boat. So 9-11 happened while I was still in school. And we went into class in the morning. Everything was fine. And we left. They put us on lockdown for a few hours. We left that afternoon. 
and the Marines are there, the tanks are there, everything's going on because we were at a nuclear power site. So we were considered a high value target um, in that realm. So 9-11 happens. Uh, we finally, I finally graduate. They send me out to the fleet. I go to San Diego um, to, and then the boat's already on deployment. So they flew me out to Bahrain uh, a few months later, a couple months later. And I ended up in Bahrain in 2002 and joined the boat there and did a couple of deployments on board the USS Jefferson City after that. So that, and I, and I can go into all the, all the stories you could possibly think of that come to, uh, in the holy shit moments that happen on board a <laughs> nuclear powered submarine at a time of war. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> what was your, what was the, if you had to pick one, what was the biggest kind of holy shit moment while during your sub years? Yeah. So, I mean, submarines, um, since the you know, desert storm essentially have not fired rockets. We haven't had to shoot off torpedoes and things like that. But we're always doing reconnaissance. Like we're the silent service. No one knows we exist. We disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, we would have seals come down every now and then. We'd pick them up um, after they did an operation. We never knew what they did. But the the one thing that you do constantly, incessantly in the military is you train over and over and over again because um, th there's just a few things that could potentially go wrong that would that scare the living bejesus out of any sub sailor: fire, flooding, or a steam line rupture. Okay. Any one of those few things that happens and people can die very quickly because there's nowhere for the smoke to go. The water's all coming inside and steam will kill you within a few minutes because it pressurizes and overheats the space. So these are the things we train for and there's all different scenarios and whatnot. Well, one time we're doing one of these drills and I was relatively new at the boat at this point. So my job was to make sure somebody didn't touch a certain valve because if you touch that valve at the wrong time, it could actually damage equipment and we don't want to risk damaging equipment. Have to do it the right way okay so the drill starts everything's going fine i'm walking around i'm looking at the depth gauges i'm making sure no one's touching the valve and all this sort of stuff and then all of a sudden um you you hear the same order repeated three times and that's not that's not normal and then i'm looking at the depth gauge and we're we're supposed to be going up because we're in the middle of this drill and we're supposed to be going up to the surface and instead of going up i can feel the angle of the boat we're actually going down and we're dropping down by about 20 to 30 feet every few seconds. And then it accelerates and we're going down deeper and deeper oh. and deeper. And we're facing the wrong direction. You know, we're not, we're not angled the right way. And, and, you know, just being even a new sailor, you can feel this stuff in the boat. And then all of a sudden you hear something that, you know, kind of scares you when you know what it means, which is engineering watch supervisor, emergency restore the engine room. And whenever an order like that comes over the mic, over, over the PA system, you know that things have gotten fucked, you know, yep. things are not going well because there is a certain depth at which a submarine will implode and it will mm -hmm. crush and everybody will die instantly. And an emergency restore is not something you ever want to hear because it means you're approaching that um, or you're accelerating in the wrong direction. And so that one valve that I was told, don't let anybody touch. Now I'm getting screamed at open that fucking valve right now, Barnes. And here I am, you know, after you hear the order and you hear it from the right guy, you're like, okay. And you're cranking. And this is a 10 inch uh, wheel, which, you know, hand wheel, it's hard for people to understand if they've never seen it before, but we're talking hundreds of pounds of pressure of steam that I'm now releasing down the header to try and get uh, the propulsion back up and running because we didn't have propulsion. We had lost propulsion completely and we were going in the exact wrong direction. And so the nice thing about this and, of course, you don't think about any of this stuff at the time. You don't even think about the fact that you could die in the next few seconds if something doesn't happen. You don't think about all the people around you. You just think about your job 
and what you need to do in that moment to get everything back up and running the right way. And that is attributed to all of the training time right. and time again. You know, it's beat into your brain. So you don't even need to think about, you don't need to pull out a manual. You don't need to look at a standard operating procedure. You just do what you know needs to be done. And sure enough, everybody, like it was kind of like ants just going to town on, on all the food at a picnic table. Like everybody's just swarming around, getting everything done. And before you know it, we have the, the, the engine rooms back up and running. We're going in the right direction. We've leveled off. We're all safe. That's when everybody got to go. Now, what the fuck did you guys mess up? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that was, that would be, I'd say the one big holy shit moment there. There I were a few so. other ones, but that was one. That, that would constitute, that would do it for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure you, I'm, look, we could probably have a whole podcast just on your, your, your naval experience, but tell, tell me how long were you in the Navy and when, when did you leave and why and what'd you do? Sure. So I was in from 2006 and did a couple of years of inactive. Um, and I left because I just got tired of the beer, uh, the bureaucracy, the politics of it. You know, I, I always prided myself on just getting the job done and being the best at it and anything I could possibly be. And sometimes you have to play the game. And I was really terrible at playing the game. Um, so I just got tired of all of it and, and left. And of course there was a girl too, as there always is. So, um, those darn girls, they, they, yeah. you know, they're just evil. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I wouldn't say evil, but you know what? They can definitely persuade you to do things you might not otherwise. <laughs> um, so I left the Navy. I, uh, my girlfriend, she ended up becoming my wife. We well, how old up, were you first? Sorry. Um, at that point, I was 24 when I left. Okay, 24 and you left the Navy. Okay. Yep. Um, and joined a company, Hartford Steam Boiler Inspection Insurance Company, which was an equipment and technology insurance company. So when I left, I didn't want to work in nuclear power. I didn't want to do shift work. I couldn't work in an office. I needed space to roam. I needed some variety in my life. And so they gave me this job where I worked from my office and I traveled around. And I looked at all these different businesses, essentially doing risk management consulting and looking at their equipment and their technologies. And that evolved um, as a career should. And I ended up running the, the Western United States and helping out with the, the largest territory. And I had 25 guys working for me all doing that. And then I ended up leading up an uh, innovation technology division, uh, doing international projects around technology and innovation and how we can leverage technology to make our business better and help our customers and so on. So that, that's a very short, truncated version of the 12-year career that I did over there. And you, so, and I think, were you, didn't you mention that you were an innovation coach? Didn't we talk about that at some point? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was, what does that mean? What do you, what's an innovation coach? That, that's a great question. So um, when, you, when you think about innovation in its traditional sense, or you think about Silicon Valley, you don't necessarily think about big companies, right? Well, yeah. the company that I worked for was the 100th largest company in the world because we'd been acquired and the name of it was Munich Re. And they were always looking at the next technological innovation. What is going to come down the pike that could either disrupt our business, could really hurt us, um, or could be a benefit to us and our clients. Well, again, if you're a really big company, everybody has their day job. They're not really focusing on innovation in general, but they also know the industry incredibly well. They know what's working, what's not working. They're also the boots on the ground talking with the clients and they know what the clients need and what the clients are looking for, but they're not really sure how to take these ideas and turn them into an actionable business plan. And so my job was to not only go out there and find some of these technologies myself, but also work with groups within the organization, you know, corporate innovation uh, to spur on new ideas. What are the things that could potentially disrupt our business? How do we make sure that we are not, um, you know, the next Kodak that's being disrupted by 
you know, the digital age of, of cameras and things like that. How do we stay in front of that? And so there's an entire methodology from going to, from idea to testing the idea and building out a concept and testing the concept and then creating a use case and testing like on and on and on, right? It's all of this reader process. So it's very much a lean startup mentality mixed in with um, corporate, you know, corporate structure, corporate strategy and all of that. And it just spans across multiple sectors, multiple divisions and departments within a company because now you're not just an entrepreneur who's coming up with an idea for one little thing, but you're trying to come up with an idea that can also be globalized or brought forth into this giant company. And there's a lot of steps that go along with that. So that's, so that's kind of what being the innovation coach was. It's a, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because you really, you think about your naval training, which is constantly training and, you know, trying to find out what are the things that can go wrong and training, 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 so that you're prepared. You, you're almost applying that a little bit to the business world, which is helping, helping companies and individuals in these companies think through those things and prepare for them and look at the innovations that help to sort, you know, surmount those kinds of things. It's, it's kind of interesting how you're, yeah. you're, you're perfectly trained for that. Well, 100%. So, yeah. You were in this time, so you're you're all through all this. You're doing this this really interesting work, but now you're married, right? You married this this woman who caught your eye, right, mm -hmm. and pulled you out of the navy. And then, did you have kids? Yeah, we ended up having two kids. Um, so I have a six year old and an eight year old right now who are you know nonstop energy, um, energizer yep. bunnies all the time. We actually ended up uh, we ended up getting a divorce last year, so it didn't end up working out. But we were together for about fifteen years, so. You know, it was a good run. There's no doubt about it. And we have these two amazing kids out of it. So, you know, no regrets there whatsoever. Did you, and so you, but you obviously left there. Did you, when did you leave to um, go start up the Angel Investors Network? Yeah. So that actually happened. Um, Angel Investors Network has been around since 1997. So as much as I'd love to oh. say I'm the founder of it, I'm not. Uh, at an event, I, you know, one of the things I've always done and always liked doing was like I said, talking about innovation and technology and business and creating creating businesses and creating wealth through that whole process and always learning myself. And one of the things I need to learn how to do was become a better speaker. And uh, mm -hmm. at, at, I go to speaker training after speaker training and I go to all these different events and I ended up meeting the, the founder of Angel Investors Network. His name is Greg Ryder. And he and I were talking, I said, listen, I'm, this is what I'm doing in the corporate world. I really enjoy it, but they're making me travel all the time. And, you know, I'm not really getting to participate on the upside of these companies that I bring to them. And, you know, it, it's just, it's getting to be a bit of a challenge for me. And so he and I started talking and he goes, well, listen, I'm, I'm working on my own startup and I'm looking for somebody to kind of take over this company. So let's talk. And that's kind of how that happened. It happened, started a couple of years ago and throughout uh, several conversations, uh, decided to make the change and make the leap in uh, October of 18. And that's when I officially took over the CEO role of Angel Investors Network and have been here ever since. Been there and it's and a little I mean if I understand what you guys do and I'll let you explain a little bit more but it's it's sort of a I mean it's a an amalgamation of all the things that you've done throughout the story that you've just told right I mean you're mm -hmm. you've kind of taken what you were doing for big companies which is you know the innovation coaching the kind of figuring out what the problems can be before they occur which is based on you know a lot of what your training was in the the Navy but yet you're kind of back full circle to this 
sort of scrappiness that you learned as a child from kind of the struggles you guys had as a family. And yet at the core of what you're doing is financial, which is again, you know, kind of the opposite of, of what, you know, what you were able to experience as a child. So it's, for me, it's a fascinating, you know, it's, this is why I love to do these things because our whole life kind of informs where we end up, I think eventually. Yeah. Um, but what is it? So what is it that you love most about what you're doing um, at Angel Investors Network? Yeah. So for me, is I, I almost get to feel like Simon Cowell on American Idol, right? I, I, I get, are you yelling at people? There are those times. There are definitely, or at least shaking my head and pressing the buzzer. Like, no, you need to go back to the drawing board, buddy. Um, but I, I get to see people that come up with incredible ideas. And where my genius lies is that I love the innovation. I love the technology. And I've been a technophobe and, you know, since day one that I can remember, right? Um, I grew up in the era of dial-up modems initially and before that rotary phones and seeing the whole evolution to where we are today. And I love it and I embrace all of it. But I also love business. I love the fact that businesses create jobs and have an economic impact and people can make money with them and investing in businesses. So I sit in that little unique middle, which is where I understand the technologies and I understand the businesses that can apply the technology and how it can help. And as a result, I get to kind of be the judge. And somebody comes to us and they say, hey, I have this great idea. And I think it's going to be the next billion dollar idea because everybody has a billion dollar idea now. And we look at those billion dollar ideas. I'm doing my air quotes. And we <laughs> say, why do you think it is? Prove to me. And you'd only have to ask a few questions depending on the industry or what they're doing to figure out whether they actually have something or they know enough or not. And the ones that where they don't know enough, we say, okay, you need to go back. Here's some training we've developed. You can watch this or you can do it yourself. It's fine. Um, and come back to us when you're actually ready. But then the ones that are ready and they're just really good at the technology or they're really good at the innovation, but they have no idea how to get a business going. They have no idea how to raise capital. They don't know what the next step is they need to be looking at. They don't know how to do marketing. That's where we get to bring the business sense in and we say, hey, let us help you out with this. Let us help you raise the capital. Let us help you put the business plan together, the marketing strategies, and let's really make this thing take off. And when we do that and we're successful at that, that's when you get to see like the finalists in American Idol and everybody's crying because you see their whole journey and their story <laughs> and you see how they've succeeded and they persevered and they made it happen. And you get so excited because now you're like, cool. I was a part of that. I got to help out. And of course, the really cool part is when you get to own a piece of it as they're growing too, right? Yeah, right. I love that. This is so great. I, I have loved hearing about your story. Um, it, it's, I mean, so many, so many holy shit moment. I mean, literally we, I think yours, you could have a, you could have a movie made uh, about you, but I love that it ends that it's, you know, and again, this is the end, but that this part of your stories so far is ending with you being able to give that back to others and help, help them. So it's, you know, while you're doing well too, I get it, but it's, it's a, it's a gift that you've been able to take, you know, some of these, these trials that you've had and turn into something so, so amazing. So Thank you for being on here and thank you for sharing your story. It has been a true pleasure. Julie, thank you very much. I've loved every second of it. I really appreciate you guys having me here. All right. Thanks, Jeff. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.